It's the MMA Geeks C-Level Podcast with your hosts, Stan Dryav and Nick Bracha. Ladies and gents, welcome to the MMA Geeks C-Level Podcast. Stan Drive and Nick Braccia coming at you. We're going to discuss this weekend's UFC 257, headlined by Conor McGregor and Dustin Poirier in a rematch from their fight several years ago. And we're going to go over last weekend's UFC on ABC One, where Max Holloway put a show on against Calvin Cater. Nick, it's good to be on with you, buddy. Yeah, likewise, man. Took a little break last week, but enjoyed uh, enjoyed watching the card. And we're starting off the year with, I mean, just a tremendous performance. And I suspect that we're going to get a couple more of those this coming this coming weekend on what's uh, what's shaped up to be, you know, knock on wood, uh, a really great card. And meanwhile, there's a card happening right now as we as we are recording on Wednesday uh, from Fight Island. Uh, Michael Case and Neil Magny card is uh, is off to the races. Yeah, Nick, trying to do research for these three cards is like drinking out of a fire hydrant. It's insanity between these. Uh, it's something like, what is it, 36 fights between these three cards within eight days of each other. And that's part of the reason why we uh, didn't, weren't able to meet last week. We are going to break down UFC 257. We're not breaking down the card that's happening as we speak. Headlined by Neil Magny and Michael Chiesa. Uh, but we are going to talk about last week's card. Nikolai, Max Holloway put on a spectacular performance. I think most people expected Calvin Cater to have the edge when it comes to the pure boxing element of this fight. But boy, oh boy, did Max Holloway stunt on him from go. I think one of the issues that Holloway used to have is that he was a slow starter, but he certainly fixed that in his last couple of fights, huh? He looked incredible. And I actually think that this that this there's going to be some commonalities between the fight we just watched and the main event coming up. Yes, he looked great from the get-go. He didn't start slow against Volkanovski in a fight that you and I both thought that he won. I actually scored both uh, both of his fights against Vol- Volkanovski for Volkanovski. I thought oh, I that, thought that uh, I thought that you had scored the second one for Max, but it was certainly like it was close. Very, yeah, very uh, close. I thought that Max dominated the first two rounds, and then Volkanovski yes. uh, kind of eked out the last three. And I thought that you and I agreed on that. But we I know I the, think- the MMA world in general disagrees. I I remember being happy because I picked Volkanovski and I won that. Um, but yeah. uh, I remember watching the first two rounds and half of the third and being like, Max has this. Like I thought Max yeah. clearly won the first two and he looked fantastic and he was, you know, clowning a bit and just matrixed the shit out of Volkanovski. Um, I thought it, you know, he did he he did the same thing against Cater. He just had supreme confidence. But what we see is that Cater's success. Yes, with those guys in Boston, like Rob Font, like he's a he's a terrific boxer. He's very dangerous to stand in the pocket with and throw down yep. and have traditional boxing exchanges. Well, Max Holloway didn't really do that. He was moving all the time. He was coming at him from crazy angles, hitting all aspects of his of his body with elbows, with kicks, just. In just an onslaught of offense. So Cater could never plant and really do uh, what he wanted to for the most part because Max was such an elusive target. Um, he made he made Cater look slow. He made him look plodding. Certainly Cater's tough, um, and he's not particularly sl- he's not particularly slow, but he just not he, he could he couldn't find Max. He couldn't cut off Max, um, and he just and it's. 
you know, as Mike Tyson famously said, everyone's got a strategy to get punched in the face. And, you know, Cater absorbed a lot of shots, but he just, he was just on his heels uh, for the rest of the fight. Um, yeah, the way you describe that, you would think that Max was like circling on the outside, right? With how evasive he was. But no, he was pressuring forward, throwing nonstop offense at Cater, right? And he was just moving his head. Yeah, his body. His, angles, like you said. He was moving his head and he was, he was also moving his body. Like his whole, I mean, um, not, you know, he was... He was just he was inc- he was just incredibly elusive. Yeah, and again, not circling away, right? Like not yeah, not right circling. in front of him, but somehow still making Cater miss consistently. And I think part of it is that Max Holloway realized a couple of fights ago, specifically against Volkanovski, I think that he's a slow starter and he can kind of uh, give his opponent a lead that then becomes difficult to catch up on if it's a truly, truly elite opponent like Volkanovski. And he's really addressed that in his last two fights. Like we said, he had a dominant first two rounds against Volkanovski. And then in this fight, fighting a, another guy that's known for starting slow, right? Cater does really well. He gets stronger in the second, third, fourth, fifth rounds. But the first round, man, he's he's kind of figuring it out and kind of getting a uh, kind of getting his range into play. And Max never really let him do that. Max just put the pressure on immediately, nonstop offense. Max was pressing him backwards the entire time, and he kind of put Cater into a position where he never was able to get his offense going. And he tried more as the fight progressed, as he normally does, but it just wasn't going to be enough, right? The output difference was absolutely gigantic. This was a virtuoso performance, the kind of performance that will go down you know, in, in, the, in the books because it's rare that you call a one-sided beating an exciting fight. And in this case, it was so exciting because Calvin Cater showed so much heart and never stopped trying. I do think there it are... could have... I would have stopped it uh, probably towards the end of the third or in the fourth. I didn't... I felt like... I felt like that the ref could have stopped the fight. I disagree with you. And okay. that's only... And, and, and I hear that argument. I just feel like... If a guy is actually swinging and he's known for having power, he's known for getting knockouts, and he is swinging at Max and landing occasionally right on his counters, um, it's hard to stop the fight in that moment when he's on his feet. Now, I know there were moments, I think it was in that third round, where he literally had his back against the cage, Cater did, and it looked like the cage was the only thing keeping up, up keeping him up on his feet. But he was never truly like knocked down right he, he, he was, was badly, never truly badly staggered by that head kick yeah i was calling oh, i was yeah, sitting there was. calling for that head kick from the first round because it was open right. and then when max yeah. finally landed it it um yeah i mean if if the, i felt like to i felt like near the end of that third round cater was more or less out on his feet yeah but then he still kept trying in he, rounds four he and did five with, the amazing with more thing. brain damage and then he got subsequent it's just i didn't think he really had a path to victory when he had landed on Max, he hadn't. He didn't really hurt him. Like I just, I thought we were watching it, and it was we were watching brilliance. But I don't really think Calvin had a chance in the fourth or fifth round. So I don't know why he had to absorb that much damage, even though it gave us, you know, a, an even greater Max performance. Yeah, I mean, I guess if you were in Calvin's corner, you would have stopped the fight. Is is part of the argument you're making? Um, or the yeah, ref? I, I think like, the ref. The ref was very. Herb Dean was. It was Herb Dean, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. Dean was very close to stepping in a couple of times. Yeah, he was, and and I, I again, I I think he I think he made the right decision. It's not the right decision for Calvin Cater's brain. It's not the right decision for his long term viability as just a normal human being, especially after you know that Spencer Fisher story that we've heard about recently, Ugh, yeah. um, where he's experiencing CTE and and literally I think can't function. Um, 
can't can't physically function neck down. But yeah, look, it's not good for Cater in that way. But Cater's knocked out a lot of people in his career. Um, the guy has an insane amount of heart. He wasn't giving in. He has an incredible chin. Um, and let's face it, Max Holloway is not the hardest hitter in the world. Even though he looked like he was hitting harder in this matchup than he uh, than he had been maybe ever in his career. But yeah, Max has had these sorts of performances once or, to- or once or twice in his career. Just never turned out to be a five round fight. If we look back at his matchup against Ricardo Lamas, I think Jeremy Stevens. These were very <coughs> kind of similar performances where he was just putting it on these guys and they couldn't do much about it but you would just you would think that cater would have the edge in the boxing realm alone but max showed that he's in a different league man there are leagues to this thing and it kind of goes uh, all the way to this main event a little bit right in that max was kind of roughed up in a similar way as he did to cater by dustin poirier and obviously we're going to get to that in the next segment when we preview ufc 257 yeah i don't know if i fully agree with with that mostly because uh, the real difference in that fight was max eating power at 155 the shots if the shots affected him and they messed up the rest of his game i think i think max i think that's really what hurt uh, uh what hurt what hurt max in that in that poirier fight i think he's just a great 145er but that I, th- I thought that that was the, the kind of uh, the main difference there. I mean, I guess I hear what you're saying, but it, does Dustin have that much power? Actually, like when does Dustin one shot sleep people? I don't. I mean, not one shot, but he, but he's Dustin Poirier has has badly hurt and and knocked out dudes. I mean, ask Eddie Alvarez if Poirier hits hard or uh, yeah, he he did hurt Pettis, Alvarez, and. Um, and Gaethje, but I feel like those were more just like a war of attrition, which he's excellent at winning, right? He's excellent at just coming through, and that that was the exact same case with Max Holloway. And he, he won based on pretty, a war of attrition. He buzz could be pretty good. I think I think yeah, Dustin's once. got more. Dustin certainly has more power than Max, especially at one fifty. I agree with you there. Yeah, I, I agree with you there. I mean, let's face it, the guys. You're right. The guys landed a similar number of shots on each other. But Max was more affected. But again, Max is a big featherweight. Now he's even bigger, I think, than he ever was. Uh, it seems like he's really been focusing on his strength and conditioning. All the highlight videos you see from his training camp are purely him doing strength and conditioning. Yeah. He looks more muscular. His conditioning in this fight was unlike anything I've ever seen. It looked God, like he, he could go for another fantastic. five rounds. Yeah, and, and he threw like over 700 strikes. I can't imagine that's not a record, especially standing up. He landed 445 of them. And these are not Colby Covington 445 shots. These are Max Holloway shots. Like there's a lot more stand-up technique, a lot more leverage and more power, I would say, than Covington for the weight division. But he threw 746 strikes, Nick, and very few of them were pitter-patter. So yeah, Max Holloway looked absolutely incredible. Looking at the stats now, Nick, he uh, more than doubled Cater's uh, strikes landed in the first round. He almost quadrupled Cater's strikes landed in the second round, tripled his strikes landed in the third round, landed 141 strikes to Cater's 34 in the fourth round, and then quadrupled basically his strikes in the fifth. He just completely dominated. It really is amazing that Cater survived to the final bell. Uh, but let's talk about the the grizzled veterans, Nikolai. Let's get into Carlos Conrad. Matt Brown had a fairly competitive fight. I think uh, a lot of folks expected that if there's going to be a first-round finish, it's probably going to be by Matt Brown, especially judging by his last performance against uh, highly touted prospect Miguel Baeza. But 
Carlos Condit was able to get through that first round where Matt Brown got top position. And it's, you know, Matt Brown has had cardio issues for a little while now. And I think that was a factor here. Uh, Carlos Condit got more confident as the fight went on. That's also a factor. And he, I think, generally gets stronger as the fight gets deeper. Um, and that showed, man. Carlos Condit's takedown defense looked way better in the second and third rounds. He was able to take Matt Brown down with a pretty fancy, uh, uh, tricky takedown there and looked good, man. Landed a lot on Brown, made him bleed, made him look roughed up. I think it's safe to say that Carlos Condit, as long as he's not fighting top five to seven level competition, um, he's still got a decent amount left in the tank. Yeah, I mean, it's it's going to be a tough it's a tough division for him because of the elite wrestlers, but. He can still he can still put on a good show, and you know Brown was griping about the scores, and I kind of get it because the third. I mean, I did I did score the first for Brown, but it was tough because Condit, you know, landed triple the shots, but they were they were shots from the bottom, but he never stopped attacking uh, from the bottom. I mean, it would have been better if he had gotten up sooner, uh, which is why I didn't give him the round. But um, yeah, he looked uh, he looked good. I felt like Condit for the first half of the fight. Um, his his ability to uh, figure out the range was really weird. I thought he was missing way more strikes uh, than usual. He seemed to have trouble landing, but he, he seemed to get that together about halfway through the second round. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, they both nobody embarrassed themselves themselves in this fight. Uh, but I also don't, you know, if Matt Brown calls it a day, good. Like I'm fine with that. Good for Matt Brown. Like, um, yeah, I think it's probably time. You know, that's no, that's no, there's nothing shameful about walking out on that, like leaving after that performance. Uh, if he wants to, if he wants to fight like a lesser guy, like in the, you know, in the, like the higher, the, the higher part of the top or the lower rather part of the top 30 and elbow somebody in the face before he goes out, then cool. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'd be all right with that. But uh, Carlos Condit now after a five fight losing streak to, Actually, the elite, right? Robbie Lawler for the title, Damian Mayan when he was at the top, Neil Magny when he was on the come up, Alex Oliveira, Michael Chiesa. These are like talented, athletic, big uh, guys who were able to do well against Condit here. But coming back against Court McGee and Matt Brown, I think it's safe to say that Carlos Condit would do well in a senior division if there was such a thing. But also, he's not that old, right? He's 36 years old. He's only two years older than both Conor McGregor and Dustin Poirier, who are about to headline this upcoming card. But I think Carlos Condit's probably taken more damage and has been doing this for quite a bit longer. And he did, really deserves a title in my because I really thought that he won that Lawler fight, and Lawler was also clearly on the gas. Yeah, he probably was, but I, I actually scored it for... I mean, it was super competitive. He landed way more, but I scored it for Lawler just because every one of Lawler's shots was a bomb, and Carlos Condit was throwing almost purely pitter-patter at that point. But yeah, the argument could easily be made that he earned that title over uh, Robbie Lawler. And then we had Jing Li Liang come in against Santiago Bonzanibio, who was out for a couple of years with some pretty serious injuries. From my understanding, he was like pretty close to death at one point. He had, well, he had very and, serious staph infection. That's what that, that's right, uh, and and I think there were also injuries that slowed it down outside of that. But you're right, that was the big one that left him, uh, that put him in a position where he was pretty close to death. And uh, Li Jingliang, man, he showed up in this one. If you look at Li Jingliang's last couple of fights, right, he picked up that big win over Elysia Zaleski dos Santos, which is super impressive, and then lost to Neil Magny and now beat up Santiago Ponzinibbio, like. Finishing Zaleski Dos Santos and Santiago Panzanibio, that is incredibly impressive at 170, right? These are really, really good fighters. It, it really is. But then how did, how good then is Magni, who who absolutely schooled right. Lee? So we'll find out later today um, when he's fighting yeah. a guy who may or may not have his kryptonite. But 
I could certainly see Condit wanting that. If Condit really wants to make a go of this, I could see him uh, wanting to fight Lee in that, um, in the UFC making that fight. Yeah, I, I would I would have some interest in that. Like, I don't know if that's a great idea for Condit just because Lee does really hit hard, and that's clear. It didn't seem to work against Magny, but you're yeah, right. but that's I not, think, the, like, that's not how Carl, people have been getting Carlos Condit out of there. People have been getting Carlos Condit out of there by getting his back and choking him out. Like you're he's, right. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Yeah, and, and we have to talk about Ponzinibbio, right, who he looks looked slow. so fantastic. I he well, looked, he, he looked so fantastic leading up to that, well, right? He's well, two a guy years who, ago, yeah. He looked, fan- yeah, he looked right. like a killer. And he, I thought, he, I thought he looked slow and confused in there against Lee. Yeah, he he looked very odd. I mean, I don't know if Ring Russ is the right term. Maybe he's a fraction of the of the human being that he was, of the athlete that he was. But he's got wins over Sean Strickland, Court McGee when Court McGee was like a good fighter in 2016, Zach Cummings, Nordin Taleb, Gunnar Nelson, Mike Perry, Neil Magny. Um, he's got quite a UFC resume, and to come in here and to get shellac like that by Ling Jing, uh, Li Jingliang, it's tough to see considering. The fact that like he could have been champion in 2018 or you know early 2019 had he not gone through everything that he went through. Honestly, and he had a, a, mm-hmm. as far as fall offs go, the closest comparison I can have is like post he the change was as drastic as like post Rockhold post surgery Weidman like champion Weidman versus uh, um, versus afterwards. Yeah. Like I just felt he looked like. Uh, Ponzinibbio just felt like he was he was fighting in in deep water. Like I don't mean that metaphorically. I mean he looked like he was, you know what I mean. Like uh, yeah, <clears throat> it, was, it just was I do, slow I motion, slow motion sluggish, confused, and just none of I don't know. He, previously he just seemed like an electric animal, and he did not. He didn't seem like the same guy to me. But when a bacterial infection, rab- I mean some guys come back from you know come back from the staph infections. But what that sort of thing you know, does to your body. Look what, you know, King Mo was never quite the same after that. No, no, he never was. I mean, King Mo also got old and yeah, I mean, I'm sure there are multiple factors, but you're right. Like this, uh, a serious staph infection can ravage you. Um, and, and clearly can have a serious effect on your long-term viability as a high-level fighter. But look, we're, we're going we're gonna to wait and see Santiago Ponzinibbio come back from this and see how he does. I think like to write him off after he lost in the first round via knockout is a little bit premature. Um, let's, let's see if you know he got caught here. Let's see if maybe he just had a, a little bit of a ring rust. Maybe he can come back and still make something of this. But it's a shame to see a guy that was on the trajectory that he was to come to this point. And then we had the other knockout, Nick, that happened right before this. Another upset knockout where Alessio De Chirico, De Chirico. It's the uh, year of the Italians, baby. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Italians he, and middleweight. Beat, uh, I'm, an Italian, I'm an Italian middleweight if I cut cut a few pounds. Yeah, I, I believe it. Maybe maybe if you lose like a foot. Dick. Um. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, so uh, Joaquin Buckley, man, looking coming in here looking like a serious prospect. I had my concerns about the fact that he came off that Kevin Holland knockout back in August, right? Like a pretty serious, gnarly knockout. And then he was scheduled against, by the way, uh, Abu Azatar, who's We're another knockout talk about artist. shortly, yep. Yeah, and Impa Kasanganai going into that bout, I was concerned because Impa can really come on strong as the fight progresses. And he was able to knock out Impa. He knocked out Jordan Wright, who's probably not a great fighter, and he had all this hype around him. And then Alicio de Kiriko, he just needed that one head kick, man. And he looked pretty good until then. Like, it was competitive, right? 
uh, the Kiriko came in looking in particularly good shape in this one, and he was kind of riding a losing streak. I think it's safe to say he would have been out of the UFC if he had made this a fourth loss in a row, but he came through with a clean head kick over Buckley, who, you know, at this point, like, there's some real concern about his chin, like, that knockout being what it is uh, over Kasang and I, like, has he really beaten anybody high level? No, not yet. And he might in the future, but I think there's real concerns about his chin, not necessarily because these are light shots that are putting him out, but because, you know, the people that he's losing to tend to win by decision. And I know that Kevin Holland has since gotten a pretty big knockout uh, over the over the course of last year against Jacare Souza, but, you know, he's losing by knockout to guys that aren't necessarily known for getting yeah, knockouts. Yeah, I mean, it, it makes me think that... Uh... You know, James Krause, who's had some major beef with Buckley, has been onto something. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he could have very well been. By the it way, like Buckley's just a guy. Uh-huh. This just in, hot breaking news. Khabib Nurmagomedov was just in the UFC cage. Whoa. True story. Was he in there with a training partner? No, he was, a- he was acting as translator for his cousin, Umar Nurmagomedov. So you're telling me Khabib Nurmagomedov, in what could be the biggest fall from grace, Nikolai, he was the arguably the pound-for-pound best mixed martial artist in the world, coming off of an undefeated career of 29-0, and now he's just a translator? Well, I think he was in his corner and decided to help out and act as translator for you know, for his cousin. Did you really just, like, knock down my bit like that? You couldn't have just played along a little oh, bit? Oh, you, you have to let to me... You, you need to text me or something and tell me when you're trying to be funny, because I can't tell. You're dead to me. <laughs> dead to me, Nick. <laughs> so, uh, speaking of knockouts... Punahele Soriano, huge knockout over Dusko Todorovic. Both guys came in here uh, undefeated, right? Like, I was confused as to why the UFC set this matchup up because both of these guys are serious prospects in my book. And, man, Soriano was able to catch Dusko repeatedly before landing the big knockout blow. Soriano is a dangerous, dangerous athletic man on top of his wrestling skill. He's got insane power. He's also very aggressive. And Dusko Todorovic was a seriously respected prospect going into this as well, and he dusted him in that first round nick yes uh totally it was a very exciting uh main very exciting main card yeah uh, a couple of other uh, the undercard was a little bit less exciting some competitive fights i think austin lingo looked good uh mellow picked up a, a, a win in a fight between two very shitty fighters ramazan Amiyev looked more exciting and more interesting than usual against david zawada uh, you know he's a bit of a prospect and carlos felipe lost uh, uh beat justin taffa by split decision i thought that was a i thought that was a bad decision i don't know about you nick yeah i don't know if you got to watch uh, the full undercard on this i didn't one. i didn't uh, no, and then uh, Jocelyn Edwards, by the way, looked pretty good uh, for her, I think, UFC debut. Like, she looked really good everywhere on the ground, standing up. She looks like a really skilled fighter. Uh, you know, there's some girls that, um, some female fighters in the striking realm where they don't look truly proficient, right? There are, there are some uh, female fighters who look like they're every bit as good and maybe better than many of the men in the UFC. Jocelyn Edwards' stand-up looks crisp and clean, and it, it looks really high level. I, I, was, I was impressed by her at least making her UFC debut. She climbed to 10 too, and right? 2. After this one, yeah, I believe uh, I believe you're right about that. And her conditioning did not uh, look bad, considering. Nikolai, let's take a break. We're gonna get into USC 257 next. Oh wait, should we quickly discuss uh, Dana White's huge announcement about Khabib's decision, Nikolai? Yeah. Did I you mean, hear? Did you hear this? Yeah, I, I read it all. He, he said that he needs to see some. You know, there's no answer, and Khabib needs to see something spectacular on Saturday. I mean, I actually, I think there's a really good chance of that happening, but I still don't, uh, I really would love to for Khabib to stay retired, maybe do an Abu Dhabi grappling match with GSP 
um, outside the UFC. But, like, he did what he wanted to do. He made his piece. His mom asked him not to do this anymore. And I'm just like, I don't know. There's so much class in walking away. I hope. uh, Nick, it seems to me like the MMA world is forgetting who delivered this message. Dana White started by answering the question about Khabib, right? This was supposed to be this huge announcement. And he starts by going, yeah, you know, Khabib, uh, he feels like he's accomplished everything that he wants to accomplish. He he feels like he's done everything that he wants to do in the sport of MMA, right? I believe that Khabib said that. I believe that Khabib told Dana White, uh, Dana, I'm done. I'm, I'm retired. There's no reason for me to come back. None of these guys excite me. And then I could see Dana White going, what if there's a big star and he's undefeated and, and he comes through? Wouldn't you want to fight him? And Khabib's like, uh, maybe if there's somebody worthy. And Dana goes, can I tell people that? And Khabib goes, no. And Dana goes, can I tell people that if they have a really impressive performance this weekend that you might consider fighting them? And Khabib goes, no. And then Dana White does it anyway. I'm oh, I'm like confident that's give or take how it happened. Dana literally turned this into a Khabib will be watching. Will you? Yeah. It's and fucking ridiculous. I don't- I don't want to see Khabib fight either of those guys. Yeah, I mean, I I don't think there's a whole lot of harm in him fighting McGregor. There'll be a huge amount of money. There'll be, uh, you know, some interesting lead up, and and the actual fight itself might be interesting. I mean, let's face it, McGregor gave him the toughest challenge I think of just about anyone. I think it's a real. I mean, I don't know if it's quite a pick 'em, but I still think McGregor. And I don't. We don't know how much is true. Like how much coke and booze was McGregor doing up to that fight? I know he looked like he was in phenomenal shape against Cerrone. I know that walking around in um, on Fight Island right now, he looks like a million bucks. Um, he's a scary, scary athletic dude. And yes, Khabib dominated that fight, but it was a game of inch- it was a game of inches to get the fight to his turf. And if that tips the other way, it's a different you know it's a different fight. That fight was extremely close until it wasn't. There were explosive exchanges where a lot was going on, and Khabib, through a ton of effort, um, it was able you know to mostly get control and put the fight where he wanted to. Something that's interesting that I do believe um, was that Khabib told that Dana White said that Khabib said no one has ever kicked him and punched him as hard as Justin Gagey did. I totally believe he said that, and, and that's part of the reason I was making the argument that, you know, it, it's not crazy to think that Gaethje won that first round against Khabib. He was landing bombs to the leg and to the head, um, even though he looked uncomfortable the whole time. I do believe that, uh, but but I, I really think Dana White just decided to turn this into some bullshit, like elongated announcement, and decided to up their pay-per-views. I think they're charging 70 bucks for this following pay-per-view, Nikolai, and uh, we all know the the recent COVID relief bill included a claw, uh, included a, a basically making it illegal for people to stream uh, pay-per-views and, and that sort of thing. And, and I'm not sure to what extent like somebody that's streaming it just to watch will get in trouble versus somebody that's actually making money off of it. But, but yeah, I mean, Dana White, you know, made that kind of retort to a fan over Twitter, a fan that said, I can't wait to uh, yeah, illegally stream UFC 257. Dana goes, oh, I, I hope you do. I got a big surprise for you, motherfuckers. Um, I assume that's what Dana was referring to. I, I'm sure they lobbied the administration to get that in there. Um, <clears throat> that's often how politics works in this country. But yeah, I, I think Dana was trying to sell uh, his $70 pay-per-view as much as he possibly could. And he figured, what if we uh, add a Khabib element into this? This could be amazing. Um, look, I, I I think there's a lot of bullshit going around. I don't think Khabib is seriously considering coming back just from all of the Russian interviews that I've heard with him on RT, like without a translation, actually hearing his voice. 
the man doesn't sound like he has any intention of coming back, right? He so he puts it like this. He's like, who am I going to fight? Justin Gaethje? Choked him out. Am I going to fight Dustin Poirier? I made him give up. Am I going to fight Conor McGregor? He tapped out. That guy's like, bullshit. Bullshit guy. Number one bullshit. No, yeah. Bullshit um, guy. So, <laughs> so, so yeah, look, uh, the, the, this whole sweepstake thing is, is ridiculous. It's a way, I think, for Dana to make the fighters perform and put on extra exciting fights and a way for him to get fans to actually want to tune in because there's an extra added element to the storyline. But it's a bunch of bullshit. I'm not into it. But I am into the UFC 257 fight card. Nick, let's take a break. Come back and break it down for these folks. And we are back on the MMA Geek C-Level Podcast to break down UFC 257. Uh, as most of our listeners know, we have a draft pick competition. We did kind of tweak the rules just a little bit for this season, and we're going to experiment with this and see how it goes. As everyone knows, the way we work this is each of us take turns picking fighters that are competing on the card. At the end of Saturday night's event, whichever of us has more winning fighters on our roster ends up winning the week. Now, we did tweak the rules a little bit. If you pick an underdog of plus 150 or more, you get two points for that pick if that underdog wins instead of just the one point that we regularly do. And also, uh, the tiebreaker will be decided by the person with the most overall accurate picks uh, in the case of a situation where we each have, let's say, four correct uh, uh, winning fighters apiece, uh, the, the most overall uh, correct picks ends up winning the week. You had the last first pick, Nick, and for that reason, I am picking first on this occasion, and my first pick is going to be none other than Mofsar Evloev to dominate Nick the Carney Lentz. Yep. Uh, he is a big favorite, and for good reason in this one. Evloev is kind of known as Mini Khabib, and I think that's a pretty adequate comparison. He's got solid grappling, and his stand-up has caught up to his grappling, I think, over the last couple of years. Only 26 year old, years old and undefeated at 13-0, actually trains out of Tiger Muay Thai, which uh, brought us Peter Yan, among others, like a really high-level team in, in Thailand. Lentz is, you know, we all know, grizzled veteran with plenty of tricks up his sleeve on top of his wrestling background. He's fought some of the best at lightweight and featherweight Tough over dude. the years. Yeah. Yeah, he really is tough, but I expect Evloev to go through him uh, with little trouble. When I say go through him, I don't necessarily expect him to get a finish, although I could see him finishing with strikes in the second half of the bout. Uh, I'm hoping this will be kind of an experience builder. I'm hoping that Nick Lentz can put up enough of a fight to make this a test for Evloev. Uh, and my only concern really is that Evloev took this on two weeks' notice, and I think he recently had COVID. But outside of uh, that really rearing its head, I expect Evloev to do his thing. Um, I agree with you completely. You agree with that pick? Yeah, right? I agree. Yep. I'm going to go right for it. I'm going to pick the main event. Uh, I think Conor McGregor is going to make quick work of Dustin Poirier. Oh, yeah. Talk to me. Um, listen, I just I just don't see a path to victory uh, for Poirier here. We've seen him uh, get hurt and rocked pretty often. His defense is not is not great. He's a guy that takes one to land a couple. Uh, and he ends up in these these battles of, of striking attrition against guys who fought at 145 and 155. McGregor doesn't have striking bouts of attrition. <laughs> like he's his precision, his power, his timing, his ability to uh, use you know use his kicks um, to wrangle guys towards uh, you know towards his left hand. Um, it I I believe. 
here's what I don't think has changed. All it takes is one um, <clears throat> from McGregor. I don't think this fight gets out of the first round. Um, I think that, you know, Poirier seems like a great guy. He's a really terrific fighter. He's got a lot of heart. Um, I just think that striking-wise in the first uh, in the first two rounds of a fight that McGregor's a diff is just a different beast at 145 and 155. We see um you know, we see people go down when he touches them and they don't and they almost never see it coming. Yeah, I don't like the guy. I don't I don't like the guy, but he's I just <clears throat> I do believe I know it's trite to say but I think we're going to see if just a fantastic killer conor mcgregor and that he's going to dominate i don't think there's anyone at 155 uh that can that can beat him yeah i mean i think conor might be one and one at 155 i mean it's it's hard to, or yeah i think he's one and one he's he's only ever had uh the eddie alvarez and the khabib Nurmagomedov fights um both for the title at this division both came in to those fights as a challenger um and Dustin Poirier's got a lot of experience at the, in the division. I do agree with you that I think it's probably likely that Conor McGregor dings him in the first five to seven minutes of the fight. And like you said, Dustin Poirier's a really good fighter. He's a swarmer, um, nonstop cardio and so much will and heart, right? But can he take a clean McGregor shot early on? I'm not so sure. When he has lost Poirier, it has been by this sort of knockout at 155, uh, obviously outside of the Khabib fight when he lost to Michael Johnson a couple of years ago. And again, it was a southpaw, a fast southpaw with a really good left hand who was able to down Poirier. So it seems like there's a little bit of a style matchup uh, disadvantage there. But I will say this, if Poirier is able to get out of the seven or eight minute mark, I think he takes over and starts to look really good in the in those middle rounds when McGregor tends to take rounds off. And I can see McGregor maybe coming back and having a decent fifth round and maybe still winning on points. Um, yeah. But there's a if 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 Poirier can just get through the couple of minutes, if Poirier can get dominant position on the ground, which is possible, and I wouldn't be surprised if that's part of the game plan, even though it will be hard, I, I think, to, yeah, take I think take McGregor down early. Yeah, I mean, I th again, I think you could do it later in a fight, but early yeah. on, I think you're right. I think it will be tough. I just don't think there's going to um, be a look, later in the fight. Like, I just think about how much damage he took yeah. against Dan Hooker, who's not as fast as is not as who's not as fast or as precise as McGregor. No, but he does have a huge size advantage over both those guys. I, I do, I do hear you. Yeah. Know, Dan Hooker is not quite in that very, very like elite, right? He's not a top three quality fighter. And here's another thing: Dustin Poirier has this inferiority complex when it comes to fighting guys like Khabib and McGregor. The way that he talks about them, right? You know that he's not talking about them like I'm gonna, uh, I'm gonna whoop that guy's ass. Like I'm gonna do this and this to him, and there's not a whole lot he can do about it. He doesn't talk that way at all. He talks like you know, uh, when you're fighting those top top guys. You know, yeah. like Khabib and Connor, you know, just one mistake can cost you the fight. Is how he talks about it, right? He doesn't say when you fight us top guys. He says when you fight those top yeah, guys. Also, just to know one of the last things you said, like Hooker only has an inch of reach on McGregor. McGregor, McGregor is reaches seventy four. Hooker's is seventy five. So that's why I just see, and he uses he uses it so well. So I just yeah yeah, and and on top of everything else, by the way, uh, McGregor is a master counterpuncher. That's yep. how he gets almost all of his knockouts. He almost never gets a knockout by being offensive, unless his opponent's exhausted and kind of hanging out against the cage. In which case, he'll press forward. But outside of that, on the counters where he's brilliant, and Poirier will give him so much to counter. Just judging on the way that uh, he's employed his style throughout the last couple of years. So yeah, I'm there with you. I'm gonna be rooting for Poirier. That's what my heart's gonna be. But I expect McGregor probably will ding him in the first 
first five minutes in this fight. I think we're largely on the same page, and this was actually my next pick on the list, so so very much on the same page with you, Nikolai. My next pick is going to be in the Amanda Hibas and yep. uh, Marina Rodriguez matchup. This is actually like a bit of a prospect versus prospect matchup, but I think that after Hibas' last performance, after her post-fight interview, I think the UFC is looking at her as kind of a potential star, and I like that they're putting her on the main card under McGregor. I think they're like not they don't usually promote non-blonde non-american non-white ufc fighters in this way and i'm glad that they're putting some muscle behind amanda rebos promotionally uh, marina looks fantastic when she is pressing forward and able to use her muay thai but she has two one and two in the ufc right two wins one loss and two draws coming off of her first career loss to Carla Esparza. Her two draws were in fights where she basically controlled the two rounds standing up and then lost one of the rounds via 10-8. And that's how it ended up being a 1919 draw. Trains out of Tiger Muay Thai, at least the last time I checked. So some pretty high-level prospects and obviously Peter Yang coming out of that camp. Uh, Hibas, like I said, serious prospect, has dominant wins over Mackenzie Dern, Paige Van Zandt, and Randa Marcos, who are all notable, right? Like they're not, none of them are truly elite, but they're all like, Pretty decent fighters, uh, and if you can get clean, like clear-cut wins over them, that's impressive. And I think she dominated all three of those girls. She trains out of American Top Team, and I think like the coaches there consider her to be like a bright prospect and probably their best female up-and-comer. Um, solid standing, high level on the ground with her Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, and has pretty effective body lock takedowns. It may be close standing with Rodriguez having a slight edge there, but. I think the ground game should not be competitive here. I favor Hibas to drag the fight to the ground and dominate Marina with her Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. Uh, but Hibas has won losses by knockout to Pollyanna Viana. So I think there's always a chance that Rodriguez catches her with a big strike, but she hasn't been like a prolific finisher at the UFC level, so I don't necessarily think that's likely. Yep. Plus, Viana has some serious power in her hands. I, I agree with you. Um, <clears throat> uh, next, I'm going to go with the... Um, the co-main event, actually. I'm going to pick uh, Dan Hooker to uh, knock out Michael Chandler. Um, listen, Chandler's a good uh, wrestle boxer. I think he's a little small um, for the UFC. And these guys who've had massive success, even Gagey coming from World Series of Fighting, like it took it took a little bit of adjustment. Chandler's had some injury uh injury issues he's we've seen him get defeated by strikers and other uh wrestle boxers occasionally um and i think i mean hooker's just he's massive uh and he's he's got he's got a lot of pop and he's not i don't think he's particularly easy to put on his back um i i think that you know unless the poirier fight really uh took his soul uh, I think this is. I think this is. I think Hooker knows how to deal with uh, with this kind of fighter. I don't think um, Michael Chandler has anything that Dan Hooker hasn't seen before. He doesn't have an equalizer like Gagey does, with, with you know where he could. He's got insane power and can fight like a zombie. Um, he's really just like a kind of a, a. I don't even want to say a better version of Eddie Alvarez because I don't think he's as good of a boxer. Um, yeah, I just think he's kind of like you know a high tier, a high tier wrestle uh, boxer, the kind of which hasn't had a ton of success um, in this division in the UFC in a couple of years. So I have a I have a tough time uh, seeing how he succeeds here, and I wouldn't be surprised if his next fight's a weight class down. I don't know how realistic it, it is. It might not be. It's probably not right to cut the weight as possible. But yeah, I, I I do agree with you on the pick. I think like. 
like you and I are so on the same page so far about these first four fights that we've discussed thus far. Chandler has like serious knockout power, and that's one way that he can potentially win. But then Hooker has a really good chin. And another way that Chandler could win is that he can get takedowns, right? He's done that in the past. He's a um, Division One All-American wrestler. But Hooker has really good takedown defense. I think it's 80% at lightweight, uh, or 80% in the UFC, I should say. And he's really only given up one takedown in the last three and a half years. I think the takedown before that was to uh, Jim Miller, and he popped right back up to his feet. And that one takedown was in his last fight against Poirier that he gave up. So... Like, Hooker doesn't really have weaknesses, I don't think, where Chandler is strong. Now, look, I could see Chandler landing a bomb with Hooker coming off of 10 rounds against Dustin Poirier and Paul Felder, like 10 rounds of wars that were absolutely back and forth in which he took a lot of punishment. Um, Hooker's coach himself talked about how Hooker, like, Hooker's an example of a guy that's taken so much damage that he's not quite the same fighter that he used to be, right? So, like, that should tell you a lot about possibly what's going on in the gym, and, and maybe some of the head trauma that he's taken and what effect that's had. I do think that Chandler is largely overrated coming as, into his UFC debut. He hasn't really beaten a top-flight opponent in several years. He's coming off a knockout win over a really, really old, way past his prime, Benson Henderson. Um, and, but again, Hooker's coming off of those two wars, right? So he's not coming into this very fresh either. Uh, Chandler can be knocked out. He can be dinged. I, I think most of his losses are via knockout. I favor Hooker to beat Michael Chandler. I think his chin is better than Chandler's, even though Chandler hits hard. He can finish with knees or the right hand, right? But more importantly, his calf kicks. Michael Chandler recently lost a fight via calf kicks to a much lesser opponent. And Dan Hooker, you better believe, is going to be throwing lots of those calf kicks. Uh, some concern, again, about Hooker and the punishment that he's taken lately. I mean, it's a guy that lost, you know, he lost to Eddie Alvarez and twice to Will Brooks. I know that was a while ago, but that was really when he was in his prime. Um, yeah, true. So, you know, split decision to that tw- true. Split it decision was also win against 2016 pre- Ben Henderson. It's just like, eh, I, it's, I, it, it, I don't know if that should have been a split, but you're right. There's still Ben Henderson past this problem. You know, in the last in 20, end of 2019, he's fighting a guy without a, without a Wikipedia page. I just, um, and I like, you know, I like the Pitbull brothers. He's got wins over, uh, well, he, he beat Patricky and he got knocked out by Patricio. Um, yeah, Patricky's not great. Patricky's just like a good fighter. Patricio's something special. Yeah. And it makes sense. He got clocked in the first round and finished by him. And that's the thing is that when Michael Chandler loses, he never like owns up to it. There's always like something behind it. Uh, the Will Brooks loss, he like didn't, like Both he was really knocked out, but he like clearly was confused. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah f- fair point, right? And the first one he he argued uh, uh, about as well, right? And the the um, Eddie Alvarez loss, he thought he deserved the win. The the recent calf kick loss that he had, he like he thought that it, he was screwed. The fight against Patricky Pitbull, uh, he fight thought that it was stopped too early, even though he basically went out and then woke back up as he was getting punched. So yeah, I mean Michael Chandler is not a good loser. He is a talented guy. He seems like a good dude. Uh, just you know, as far as his personality and all of that, but I, I think you're right. I think you hit the nail on the head when you said that like wrestle boxers don't really do all that well at high level MMA at, at lightweight anymore, the way that they did you know five to seven years ago. And yeah, I'm there with you. He's overrated. This would have been much lower on my list because I think Chandler has a higher chance than uh, than being a third or fourth pick in this case. Uh, my next pick, Nikolai, and and I think this is where things get a little bit more difficult. I'm going to take the flyer. I realize this is risky because this fighter is not at all dependable. I'm going to pick Khalil Roundtree to beat Marcin yeah, Pochnam. That was almost my pick. That was almost my last pick. And it's just like. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I get why, but you can't rely on Roundtree, right? He can show up 
like a butterfly and he could show up like a freaking shark. And it, it really all depends on his mental kind of space. Uh, super talented physically, but like I said, mental midget. And his ground game sucks. So Marching Prochnia, who has a karate background, there's a chance that he can, you know, get a takedown, maybe land a big shot on Roundtree. Yeah. But uh, I like Roundtree to knock out Prochnia with his speed and athleticism advantage. Uh, Prochnia is 0-3 in the UFC, all three first-round knockouts, right? He's basically a jobber. Uh, I I agree with the pick, but it makes me a little bit nervous. I'm going to go yep. with what's listed as a much closer fight, but which I feel pretty strongly about. I think JoJo Calderwood's going to come back strong uh, against Jessica I. I think she lost her title shot to Jennifer Maya, and she was probably really bummed about that, but it doesn't take a whole heck of a lot to get back in the scene at 125, and someone's going to need to fight the winner, uh, Valentina Shevchenko, Jessica Andrade. So... <laughs> um, and I's just I has not been impressive. Joanne Calderwood's been impressive more recently than than Jessica I. I think Calderwood's faster. I think that she's better on the ground. Um, I kind of don't know even how Jessica I is still hanging around. But like, if JoJo can't, if JoJo cannot win this fight uh, decisively, then yeah, I don't know who the who the you know, who we're looking at for contenders at, at 125. I guess it'll be the next the next gen of up-and-comers uh, like Dern. Um, so, yeah, I'm picking I'm, I'm picking the Scott fighting out of Syndicate still, I believe, uh, JoJo Calderwood, to uh, take uh, uh, hopefully a 30-27, but more likely a 29-28 decision over Jessica I. Yeah, I, I'm there with you on the pick. I wouldn't have had it quite as high, but you do have a talent for picking these women's fights. Um they have a lot in common, actually, right? Both are hot and cold fighters who prefer to strike. Both fighters are 34 years old, five foot six. Both train in well-known gyms in Las Vegas. Uh, like, uh, I can beat somebody like Shukagian and Viviana Rujo, which are really impressive wins, right? But lose to the likes of Cynthia Calvillo, whereas Calderwood, Calderwood can beat someone like Andrea Lee and then get submitted by Jennifer Maya. Um, even though Calderwood's three and four in his last seven, I, I do favor her to beat uh, Jessica. I uh, I do think this will probably be a close decision. And if Calderwood can get takedowns, that's probably her biggest key to like decisively taking this fight. Both these girls tend to fight to very competitive uh, decisions against like-minded opponents. So uh, I am there with you on the pick so far. No disagreements, surprisingly. My next pick is going to be in the Ottoman Azatar and Matt, the Rola for Vola matchup. I like Favola. I actually picked him in his last fight against Luis Pena as an underdog, but he has a lot of heart, right? But his one loss was when he got knocked out in the first round against a guy with good power and almost nothing else. Azatar has serious power. He's incredibly aggressive, high strike output. He's intimidating on yep. top of that. Um, I could see Favola getting takedowns. Azatar doesn't have the best takedown defense, but I, I think Ottoman just has to land one clean shot over the course of this fight. Uh, either that or we're going to see just a just a relentless firefight from Favola. Uh, I'm going to be probably rooting for Favola uh, slightly, but I'm picking Azatar here. Well, was Azatar's last fight was... Um... What the hell was that? Karma worthy, he knocked out in the yes. first, first round. That was some scary shit. Yeah, I just think he's um, until proven otherwise. You know, he's he seems like a he just seems like a seems like a psycho, like a power. He's psycho. a frightening man. And, uh, yeah, and from what I understand, by the way, both him and his brother, yeah, uh, are just they're, they're, they're like on bad men. They're on lists. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Somewhere. Oh yeah. A hundred percent. They apparently like go up to opponents sometimes and like literally threaten their lives before they compete against them. At least like outside of the UFC, like they're literally both insane, like mobsterish people. Not good. Not good qualities. But uh, but they get our pick. Um, yeah. 
I'm going to go next with uh, uh, I'm going to pick your country, man. Um, even though Andrew Sanchez's last performance, uh, you know, w- w- was terrific when he uh, he took your other boy, um, Downton Abbey. I'm sorry, Wel- Wellington. Ter- <laughs> Welling- yep. Wellington Terman. Yeah, he did. Oh, so man, he knocked hurts. he knocked him silly. <laughs> I don't think he's going to do the same thing against Mahmoud Muradov, uh, who I think is uh, just a better all- a better all around fighter with a with a much higher upside, and I don't see him. Uh, leaving his chin up like that and and getting uh you know getting ba- getting pieced up, which really surprised me. Um, so I'm gonna go with uh, the uh, the handsome Uzbeki fighter Mahmed Muradov uh, to probably win a decision or or potentially get a finish against Andrew Sanchez. Yeah, I'm there with you on the pick. Um, there's a chance that Sanchez has hit like a whole new stride. His striking looked really, really improved against Wellington Tournament. He looked confident. He was throwing that cross hook repeatedly and landing it repeatedly, taking his head off the center line. So there's a lot of big improvements for Sanchez. He used to also have an issue where he didn't pace himself and would get exhausted over the course of the fight. And he seemed to have addressed that as well. So there's a chance he's like a new fighter and he's just a monster. But Muradov is super slick as a striker, uh, really good evasive footwork, um, really good boxing, and he has the reflexes to avoid getting countered, which I think is really what's going to help him against Sanchez. Also has good takedown defense, and Sanchez has a wrestling background, so I am there with you on that pick, and it would have been my next pick as well. Uh, The next pick I'm going to make is in a fight where I I think the odds are actually quite a bit too far. I'm going to to take uh, Armand Saryukin to take a decision over Nasrat Hakparast. I think he's going to stick to him in between competitive striking exchanges. Nasrat is explosive. He's super fast as a southpaw. A real prospect. Nasrat is in his own right. I think he's something special. Armand is solid standing, but he's like an elite grappler. He could just stick to you. Like he, his first fight in the UFC was against Islam Makachev, right? Who's like considered like the next Khabib in many circles, and that was super competitive. And this kid was making his UFC debut in like his early twenties. So yeah, I'm, I'm big on Armand here. Uh, although I can see Nasrat Hakpras landing a bomb, man. Like he hits incredibly oh, yeah. hard. He's very fast, and his takedown defense is improving. It is overall very solid. So uh, there's some risk in this pick. And, and that's why I think the odds are too wide, but I, I do favor Tariqim. Yeah, I agree with everything that you said there, unfortunately. We're really We're really on the same page so far, Yeah, right? I'm sorry about that. Yeah. Um, no, please. <laughs> maybe no maybe we'll split now because even though she didn't look uh, terrific in her last fight, I'm going to pick, um, and I like Sarah McMahon more, I'm still going to pick Juliana Pena uh, to beat Sarah McMahon in what I expect to be uh, a pretty close, um, a closely contested uh, bout. Um, I think Pena is a better striker. Um, McMahon has that wrestling pedigree, and yet she's been subbed a couple of times, I think, in the UFC. And she just hasn't followed, you know, she got her quick title shot against, against Ronda Rousey, but, <clears throat> you know, I would say two things. Juliana Pena is someone who came into the UFC, I think, overconfident and and has eaten some crow and learned some lessons and had a long layoff and then was defeated uh, her last time out uh, when I think she was favored. Who was that against? Uh, the she, I, don't, I don't know if she was favored against Jermaine Durandamy. Oh, that's right. That's right. Against, yeah. Okay, okay. so Durandamy is super, super tough <clears throat> and, and massive. Um, but McMahon has... She, she hasn't always looked like 
she wants like she seems like someone who wants to compete, but I just don't know that she wants to be a fighter. Like she um, had all you know came in kind of with all this talent, but um, ha- have we really have we really seen the drive? Have we seen the killer instincts? Like it, she hasn't really been able to put it all together, and it's been a while now. Um, so she's actually she's favored in this fight, um, and I can't I'm not quite sure why. Uh, I don't know what what performance. Um, she gave that, that is going to give her the lead over uh, over Juliana Pena, but I see, I just see Pena being uh, hungrier, faster, um, having better striking, and pro- not being oversized or um, easy to take. I think that easy for McMahon to take down, whose uh, Olympic wrestling credentials haven't really translated into UFC. Um, uh, bantamweight dominance the way that we saw with uh, Rousey. Yeah, I, this is one that I struggled with. It's really close on paper for a lot of reasons. Juliana Pena, I think the reason that she is a slight underdog in this matchup is because she gave up several takedowns to the smaller and less athletic Nico Montano, who doesn't have the wrestling background of McMahon. Like Almost at will, Nico was able to take her down. Nico made a huge mistake in that third round where she let her get up, and then uh, Pena was able to get top position and win on points that way. But Nico was controlling that fight pretty clearly, I thought, uh, with her with her wrestling. And again, she's not a fraction of the wrestler that McMahon is. Uh, McMahon has this thing where she might be the better athlete, it might be the much better wrestler, maybe even sometimes the better grappler. But I don't know if it's her conditioning or her mental focus. It's kind of like Chael Sonnen back in the day where she can dominate and then suddenly just give up a submission out of nowhere. Everything just goes to shit. I think there's a fair chance that Juliana Pena you know, gets top position at some point and makes Sarah McMahon not want to be there. But I'm going to edge ever so slightly, McMahon, if only because this will allow for a little bit of a tiebreaker between us. I'm not sure that we'll disagree on any more fights. But uh, also because Sarah McMahon looked like she put it together a lot better in her last fight against Lena Landsberg. She trains with Team Alpha Male now, which I think is probably an improvement. I'm hoping they're working on her mental game. She seems to be in a good place uh, kind of in her life as well. She's got, uh, I think, a fiancé now. And and you know she's got, I think, a daughter. Uh, she seems to be like in a good place in life overall, which really can have an influence on your career. So I will side ever so slightly with McMahon over Juliana Penny, who's always like, like I think her whole life is just tumultuous. She's just like a got a chip on her shoulder, always causing problems where there don't need to be problems, and and so I'm I'm, I'm gonna side yeah. ever so slightly with McMahon, but I'm probably gonna regret this one. That's uh, a, I mean, this is a tough one. It's the reason why it's so late. Yeah, yeah, you're not kidding. Uh, we've got only two picks left, Nikolai, and we'll end up with six picks, uh, six draft picks apiece. My next pick is going to be in the Zalga Zumagalov and Amir Albazi matchup. Albazi is actually like a well-rounded fighter from UK. He's a real prospect, 13-1 overall. Uh, won his USC debut by triangle choke over what turned out to be a pretty mediocre opponent. His one loss is to Jose Shorty Torres by decision. Who's a pretty good fighter. Uh, he's not necessarily like elite anywhere. He's kind of like a bit better than a jack-of-all-trades, I would say. Um I would say his Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu is probably his biggest strength, though. Zalga Zumagalov uh, is also, in my opinion, a solid prospect from Kazakhstan. He's a fast pressure striker who sets up offense with fakes and feints. He is 7-2 in his last nine fights, including a win over former UFC title challenger Ali Bagautinov. And he also has a win over Tyson Nam, which I think is impressive. Lost a very close decision to Julian Paiva in his UFC debut. And, 
you know, Paiva is like a seen as a serious prospect, is a much bigger man, more UFC experience. And some people scored that fight for uh, Zumagalov. Um, plenty of five round experience too, on top of everything else. For that reason, uh, I, I I favor Zalgas Zumagalov. I think the wrestling will decide this fight. And although I'm concerned about his takedown defense, I think he should be able to take. Uh, 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 Amira Bazi down uh, occasionally in a competitive decision, score enough on the feet over those 15 minutes. I think both guys have a pretty high ceiling at 125, though. So it's a little bit of a shame that they're facing off this early in their careers. And your pick was? Uh, my pick is Zalgas Zumagalov. ZZ. ZZ. I'm going to mirror that pick and move into the last one. This is so tough. I still have doubts here. We're talking about two guys who are, who have, who are on two fight losing streaks. Um, not particularly active. Tavares, who's been around forever, I believe it was a tough competitor, uh, was looking real good until Robert Whitaker um, floored him, and then he had recent losses uh, getting pieced up by Israel Adesanya during his ascent, and then uh, as the role of gatekeeper got just crushed by Edmund Shabazian, who was subsequently crushed by Derek Brunson. Um, so... You know, where's his confidence at right now? And then we've got Antonio Carlos Jr., who had a very close loss uh, against Uriah Hall um, and also lost a fight from Heinesh in one of those fights where he very traditionally uh, snatched defeat from the jaws of victory, coming out, coming out fast but kind of gassing and not having terrific heart. This is a really, really tough one to call. I think as far as gas tank... <clears throat> like, in career. I don't mean... I mean overall, like, how much they've got left... Um, I feel like Antonio Carlos Jr. probably has more, um, has more to give at this point in his career than um, Brad Tavares does. Although Tavares is only 33 years old, um, <clears throat> and Antonio Carlos Jr. is just 30, um, fighting out of ATT. I think that God, this is going to be one of those really. This, I just think this is going to be a super, super close fight. Um, yeah, I think it. Should be too, but I think that just I think based on athleticism, and and as long as he does not get uh, caught and knocked out, and although Tavares has power, um, he doesn't have a lot of finishes. Um, you know, he knocked out Krzysztof Jacob, but I believe Jacob has been touched up uh, and KO'd you know multiple times. I think Antonio Carlos Jr. should be able to do more to win the points game in round one and two before probably losing a third round um, under, you know, under pressure where he sort of, and he sort of does a lot of sliding against the cage. Um, you know, he's got, in, in a way he's, uh, oh my God, who's the, who's the, um, the New York, the, the New York based Brazilian fighter that was around Hoppe that was around forever. Oh yeah. I've, I've sparred with him. Um, Oh, I can't, I, I can't remember his name. I feel yes, like Antonio Carlos Jr. is the new is, is the new Hafe on the tall. Um, I think they're in different leagues athletically, but I do hear what you're saying as far as skills. Yeah, who why, who do you think Antonio Carlos Jr. is more athletic? I think so. Yeah, yeah. I I, no, stronger, I agree. I agree with that. I just mean in terms of like unpredictability, performance, uneven. But yeah, um, I hear that. I think uh, I'm going to go with Antonio Carlos Jr. here, um, even though he's a slight underdog. Yeah, I, I'm there with you. I actually don't you think... Got, you heard me talk myself into a pick, because I really wasn't yeah, sure. Yeah, li literally, you decided as you were talking, you could tell. Uh, yeah, Tavares is like Sorry faster. He's better standing. No worries <laughs> at all. No, are you kidding? It's it's interesting to, to hear uh, your train of thought there. 
insight into brilliance. <laughs> Tavares is faster. He's better standing. And he has good takedown defense, right? So there is reason to believe he could take this fight. But I do think like there's there's a point of diminishing returns at this point in his career where he's just not the same guy he used to be. He never really had power. Uh, always athletic. Um, good skill standing and good takedown defense. So again, he has the skills on paper to win this fight. But I think Antonio Carlos Jr. coming off of that extremely close fight with Uriah Hall. Uh, I think Uriah Hall at this point in his career is a better fighter. And there's an argument to be made that Carlos Jr. won that fight against Hall. So like it, it was competitive outside of the nose break in the first round. And Carlos Jr. showed a lot more heart and conditioning in that last fight than he has in many years. So I guess I'm going to go with... Uh, uh, Antonio Carlos Jr. as well uh, on this one. I think he can, like you said, score enough points in two of the three rounds to win a decision over Bad Tavares, but this is likely going to the scorecards, I think, either way. You show, you've shown a surprising amount of respect for my analysis this week. Yeah, you've been uh, surprisingly having some decent analysis this week. <laughs> <laughs> Jerk. <laughs> Happy New Year. Um, no, up. no, honestly, you've, right. you've had some really uh, solid breakdowns and like you've mentioned several things where I was like, oh, I was going to say, oh, I was going to say that. So yeah, we're we're very much on the same page. There's only one fight that we disagree on and I don't think either of us feel strongly I, about we, it. I don't, the, I don't feel strongly at all. <laughs> no. Yeah, the Juliana so, Pena versus Sarah McMahon matchup. Uh, so, so it should be interesting to see how things shake out. Nikolai, that will do it for this card. It's good to be back with you. It's good to be recording again. Good to be breaking down this stuff with you, Nikolai. Looking forward to connecting again soon you know turn on your espn plus app because we're we're halfway through a card right now oh i'm gonna watch it from the beginning nick you know i'm not into that spoiler business crazy talk Ooh, sounds like there's a really competitive uh, uh competitive fight just ended um, that totally counts as a spoiler nick i didn't tell you what it was all right um <laughs> yeah we got i'm just excited for uh, my girl roxy to fight in an hour a couple hours um, That's right. I, I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna root for her. Nicholas. So who do you got? She's, who do you got? got in, I know we're not, we're not. Yes, we're not scoring it. But who do you have in the main event? Um, I uh, I'm thinking I'll, I'll give the edge to Magny, who has more five round experience. But Kiesa has been looking really good on the grappling yeah. side of things. I just feel like Magny coming off of that win over Li Jing Liang and kind of dominated Li Jing right and. Li Jing Liang has looked really good in the and, fights yeah. that kind of sandwiched that one. He destroyed Lawler I think it's another that. sign of where he is. Uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I, th- I think it kind of is a sign of where he is at this point. I mean, Lawler getting destroyed at this point in his career is not surprising, but I do think Magny's probably on a probably on a different level, but it does look like uh, for Chiesa coming up to 170 was a big, big boon in his career. Nobody would have picked him to beat Rafael Dos Anjos at 155, and he dominated him, right, uh, where they fought uh, in his last bout. So, so I, I do think that uh, there's a chance Kiesa has a decent amount to show in his career as he goes forward, but he hasn't necessarily improved his stand-up by a whole lot. It seems like he's just improved mostly his takedowns. And, you know, once he takes your back is when he's really dangerous. But outside of that, not ultra. However, Magny was submitted, right, uh, by Damian Maia. Magny was submitted by Damian Maia and by RDA, who got a triangle choke. And That's Hector right. Lombard had him in some very uncomfortable positions. So, like, if Magny... The question is, I mean, Magny's great at range. Can he keep Kiesa off of him? Because Magny doesn't have the power where Kiesa is going to run, is gonna, is really in danger of running into a knockout shot. I just, I'm not sure. I want Magny to win. I love Neil Magny, uh, despite, you know, despite him popping uh, a couple of years ago. He's looked terrific since he got back. I just, I worry that Kiesa has his kryptonite. And that's why the fight's going to be really interesting because Michael Kiesa is going to do everything possible to uh, be a backpack on Neil Magny. And I'm not convinced he's not going to get there. And I'm not convinced he's not going to get there when they're dry. 
Yeah, uh, yeah, but it's also interesting with we, we've seen him kind of falter in a firefight where things are, are just kind of crazy and he can't quite keep up. We've even seen him get submitted by guys who are not supposed to be the submission savvy like level that he is at, right? Like in the Anthony Pettis fight uh, where, you know, Anthony Pettis is usually the one to wilt, but it was um, it was him who wilted. So uh, I could also see just Magny's output becoming a big factor and, and kind of putting Chiesa into a mental frame where he doesn't want to compete anymore. But will it get into that third, fourth round territory yeah. where I think Magny could do that is the question. Will Chiesa be able to get that back and and, uh, and finish? Yeah, there? very in- very interesting fight. I'm super excited for it. Yeah, we also have Munir Lazez coming back on this card. Oh, yeah, yeah. Really After his, great, his, his amazing performance and surprising performance uh, is a spoiler. Uh, late notice against Abdul Rock, uh, uh, I don't know Rock uh, Ab- <laughs> <laughs> Al Hassan. Al Hassan, thank you. Yeah, Tom Breeze is on this card. Lerone Murphy, who's under the radar, undefeated, like looking really good in the UFC so far. Tyson Nam, Matt Schnell should be interesting and probably a finish one way or the other. Ricky Simone is on the card. I mean, Suma Derji, who's coming off of a big knockout win, is on the card. Yeah, there's some there's some names to be excited about. I know some of these guys have already probably fought. Also, we have a, a guy making his UFC debut on this card, Nick, whose name is Francisco Figueredo. So he's got Francisco Trinaldo, and he's got Davidson Figueredo in there, and he kind of looks like he's a mix of those two if you look at his picture. So uh, I'm curious to see if he has any of the other attributes of those two fighters. Um, well, I could tell you the answer to that, but I won't. All right. <laughs> I will, uh, I'll be talking to you, dude. Good talking to you, bud. Have a great weekend, and enjoy UFC 257. I know why. Yeah, I yeah. Well, I'm sure we'll be texting at each other violently all throughout. 100%. Just be careful pirating that shit or Dana White's coming gonna, out. No, I got my new job starts Monday. I'll be paying for it. All right, Nicola. Congratulations, buddy. All Have right. a great weekend, bud. Bye.